Okay, so there's one more that I wanted to talk about, you know, and I, I want to express to the Wallingford Police Department, I'm not trying to malign anyone. I just am very frustrated with the amount of work we've done on this that hasn't been reciprocated or, I mean, I guess it's been acknowledged, but I get a lot of this. I get a lot of, keep going. You're doing a great job. You know, the stupid stone comment. I mean, it's... It's, like a pat on the head. It's got to be yeah. more than us, right? So um, detective number three, I'm just going to call him three because I don't think it's appropriate to identify him personally. Um, he and I had been working, um, you know, close by, and I had been asking him questions, and he'd been relaying information to me. little back and forth, little back and forth. Um, Teresa Lyon, who doesn't sleep, and is retired, and who stays <laughs> mm-hmm. up all night digging stuff. And she, you know, it's it's true to the nature of who Teresa is. She'll call me up and she'll be like, "Hey, kid, I found this information," and I'm and she just like unleashes it on me. And I think to myself, "Oh, what is she talking about now?" But it always pans out. She sends me a screenshot of a person that looks very much like Detective Three, with the last name of Detective Three. Um, who used to live in a house um, throughout their childhood with Detective 3. Um, she, sh- she sends me a screenshot of this person's Facebook account. Let's call him 4. 4 is a director at Teen Challenge Connecticut in New Haven. So... Meaning hmm. that Detective number 3 has a direct connection to Teen Challenge. So I... It's kind of a conflict of interest, right? Well, you would think you'd mention it. Now, the Wallingford police have been telling me since the beginning, we have a lead we're working, we have a lead we're working, we have a lead we're working. And we're going to tell you, oh, nothing's coming of it yet, and I check in every week or so, and they don't have it for me. They also told me that they were going to have me in to meet the other um, detective on the case. Um, I think his name is Jakes. And... um, that they wanted to listen to the Laura, um, the Laura West audio to compare against Jimmy Farnham, which they don't see any problem with. So we keep talking about that lead, and they won't tell me what it is, so fine. So I send three a picture of four's Facebook profile where it says that he manages Teen Challenge Connecticut, and I say, hi, three, is this something we should discuss? Now, last week I was at work in Fargo, North Dakota, which I don't typically get to, you know, travel to. I'm at work and I see a phone call from three and I can't pick it up because I'm at work. About an hour later, I get this text message. No, Jess, it is not something we should discuss. It has nothing to do with the investigation. Leave my personal life out of it. Thank you. Yeah, okay. My response about two hours later, because I really wanted to think about it. That's a long time for me to respond, guys. I said, three, respectfully, I failed to see how the fact that your relative works alongside a murder suspect in a case you're handling should be considered your personal life. Because here's the thing, guys. I don't care about Four's past addiction. I don't care about Four's employment rec. I don't care why when you and I, Joe, went to Wallingford Police Department and went upside of Teen Challenge and down the other, why did everybody at the table just smiled and nodded, including three? They didn't think we were going to figure it out. I guess. They, they, they already knew. They already knew. 
about but, all that. But here's my question. If they already knew that three had four and four worked at Teen Challenge, they told me that they didn't know that Mark worked there. So is that incompetence or is that a lie? Because I can't tell you which one I think is worse. I was just going to say, is, is one better than the other? Because it's probably not. Now, here's the next thing I wrote. And then I said, to be honest, I assumed when I uncovered the connection that that was your lead. Yeah, I don't think there's anything sinister behind it. I, th- I think it just happened to work out that way. I don't think it's any coincidence he's off the case. Uh, I'm not sure what he did to get a promotion. So I'll just assume he's off the case because of that. You think they found out that he had that connection to Teen Challenge and that's... I think that connection went nowhere. I don't think he was going to get any information. I think there's probably HIPAA laws or something that would have prevented him from interceding or whatever the case may be. Uh, but yeah, we we sort of suspected that that was kind of what their angle was the, the day we left the police station and to see three and four being related and all that... Um, I, I think pr- kind of proves that, that that's at least what they were trying to do. And we know it didn't pan out because he had told us weeks back it didn't pan out. It's very off-putting. Their goals when we came to the table with them, Joe, on the 4th were number one, find Doreen. Number two, work in good faith with each other. Right. And I don't feel like that good faith has been reciprocated. And that's really unfortunate because I'm not here to show anybody up. I'm yeah, here to help find Doreen. The Wallingford police, I, I I mean, I know they listen to the podcast and they complained about a couple of things right off in, in the first couple episodes. So I, I'm sure they're still listening and, and I'm sure that they're upset that we're saying that, that, that their investigation wasn't thorough, but it, it couldn't have been or you would have solved the case. And right. I, I know that they're, you know, they, they don't want us talking poorly about them or you know, talking about what sort of relationship we had, but you you talked about working in good faith and, and we're all still doing that. And there's been now four episodes from, from 10 through these where I have talked about the incompetence level of the Wallingford police. Yep. You know my phone number. You know how to get in touch with me. Do you want to talk? Do you want to rectify this? You want to get this investigation back on track? You want to prove everybody wrong that you are a good police department, that you guys are very capable? We're offering our assistance. We're literally giving you evidence you don't have. Yeah, what are you guys waiting for? The thing is, too, what bothers me is that in everything that the Wallingford police says, whether it's the the dummy press release that they sent us or any news article, they always say we are always taking information from the public. We're the public. Yes. We are we are just private citizens and we're collecting all of this information for you. We are the public. So I'll tell you my favorite thing of all time was <laughs> Jessica came up with a really great timeline. And it's something we've been working off of a lot. We were able to sort of lay out because, and you said this a lot, Sarah, during this podcast, that to tell the story, you got to go forward and go backwards a lot mm-hmm. so that people can understand and everything, it goes into context properly. And, and at one point, Jessica was asking Detective Three questions that she wanted answered to help our investigation. And... He was responding to her, and at one point, Jess stopped, and she said, are you reading the information I gave you back to me? 
And he proudly said yes. Uh, I gave you that for you to work off of. Prove me wrong. I mean, again, I think I'm right in these details because they come from verified sources. But if I'm wrong, I need them to tell me. Don't don't cite my work back to me like it's the Bible because I'm giving it to you because you're the expert. Right. They could go back and correct things that you might be wrong about. Instead, though, Jessica, what did they tell you about your timeline of events? Oh, it's the best one that they've seen the whole time, which, you know, guys, I always used to think detective stories were really cool because I thought detectives are super smart, right? And, you know, maybe the three people in this room are really smart. But you know what I do? I follow the clues and I put stuff together and I sit with my computer and I say, okay, on this day, this happened. On this day, that happened. And I piece it together to try to tell myself the story and follow along. Um I'm glad, I'm proud that my timeline is the best one that they've seen, but that should not be the case three decades later. No, it shouldn't. No. <laughs> Thanks, guys. It, it, <laughs> it, I mean, great work by you, and it's, it's amazing. Like I said, we gleaned so much information that first day, Sarah, when we went out and we sat with Donna and Stephanie and Carol Oh, my God. The first 10 minutes that we were in that house, they wouldn't even let us get into the house before they started talking. I think they were just happy to see somebody who cared. We spent four hours with them and got so much background that told us who Mark was and, and, and sort of set the parameters of what we could expect, what kind of person this was. And this is why I'm saying if the police had done that from the get go, they would have known that you don't trust anything the man says. And they wouldn't have built their entire theory on the case based off of the information he gave them. And the Record Journal wouldn't have written all their articles based off this false information that Mark was giving everybody. So th- this is how it all started. And this is why we're at where we're at now. You said on the last podcast, Sarah, that you can bring them to the door. You can bring them to the threshold. Yeah, I, we can't. can arm you with the information. We can We can get you right up to that point. But it's only... The Wallingford PD that can do that last stretch that needs to be done to close this case file. When we went in there on March 4th, I felt like this case had a chance to be solved. Yeah. And uh, Chief William Wright, who, again, I think is an outstanding individual. We seem to be on the same page. We exchanged a lot of ideas. I knew he really appreciated it. DeMeo was, for whatever reason, argumentative. Um, and kind of tried to poo-poo the whole thing, uh, which I, I just don't understand. Uh, and the other detective asked a lot of questions, seemed to really want our help. And I, and I left there and I really thought we can make this thing happen. Yeah. We're doing our work. These guys are on board. They like the work that they've seen by us. Let's go solve a crime. Yeah, I think they, at that point, respected us because, remember, the first time I talked to Lieutenant DeMeo, he said, so what is this? Your friend's doing a blog or something? And Mm -hmm. I said, my friend and colleague, Sarah DeMeo, is doing a podcast. But again, Scooby-Doo all the way. Um, You know, but here's the thing. We're media, you know, for all intents and purposes. and I'm an attorney. I guess the police thought I was um, representing the podcast at one point. I'm not. I'm not the podcast lawyer. I'm just doing this because I'm interested in it. I want to help. Um, they take my calls because I've got an ESQ after my name. Um, they take my calls because I use, you know, big fancy words. And I say words like state's attorney's office, you know, internal affairs. Um, you know who they haven't been calling back? 
for years who phone calls have repeatedly gone unanswered up until now, okay? They're paying attention now. But Debbie's made phone calls over the years that have just gone unanswered. And I find that inexcusable. That Cola Volpe fella. Boy, I'd love to talk to that guy. Yeah, and because I remember Debbie saying multiple times that she has called him. He's pretty much the one that she's been making calls to over the years, never called her back. I talked to him that one time after being told that he was the person that I should talk to regarding any information on Doreen's case. And when I did get him onto that phone that the one time, he said, I'm really not the person to talk to. I don't know that much about this this case. Yeah, guys, if you're keeping track, so I don't know when you started, Sarah, but I started around Christmas time, so it's been four and a half months-ish. Yeah, like I first picked out this case. It was last fall. I want to say I found Doreen's name in October, so I made the first call to the Wallingford Records Department. It was probably around the end of October, around November, so something like that. So let's call it six months. Yeah. Um, I Cola Volpe, excuse me, Cola Volpe, DeMeo, Detective 3, and now this new guy who I have his number. I haven't called him because I had the little dust up where 3 accused me of sniffing around his personal life. I can't speak to Cola Volpe's police work because I've never seen any of it. I've never seen it in action. But I can say as far as being a good human being and returning a phone call to a little girl's aunt or mother that's been gone for 30 years, to be as dismissive as he is as a public servant is shameful. And that's all I got. Go with Volpe. Horrible. Horrible. Pick up a phone, dude. Come on. Mm Mm-hmm. Yeah, and I never know what it is. I don't know if it's the fact that they didn't solve it. I don't know if it's the fact that she wasn't a Wallingford kid. I don't know if it's the fact that they qualified her as a runaway. I mean, you know, in the late 80s, I was 10. Um, I turned 10 on June 12th, 1988, the day that we think she went missing. You know, when you called someone a runaway in 1988, the implication was that that person was trash, that that person was a throwaway. Uh, the the article that talks about she's a runaway, you know, she probably is going to get mixed up selling drugs or selling herself on the streets to earn money. I mean, that was 10 days out. Yeah, which yeah. who was that that was even talking that? That was, was in one of the articles. Look, that was a weird place to go in 10 days. I mean, that's, that's what you thought of this case. Again, a, a little bit of investigative work into Mark would have told you maybe... Maybe verify everything this guy's telling us. Let's not take him at his word. But you would have had to have done a little bit of investigative police work to know the kind of person you were dealing with to know what you, how you should approach it. Right. You got to do a character study. And I mean, I'll go back to the two pages that I found in Danbury. I think it was pages 30 and 31 of Mark's interview. They will not give me any of that information. They won't let me touch it. They won't let Donna touch her own statement. They won't. They claim to have a statement from Debbie. They won't let Debbie see it. So I don't like, what are you guys waiting for? What are you doing with that information? Just remember, they have a whole interview with Mark when they busted him on the gun and he came in and he talked about Doreen. Those two pages had a wealth of information. I know they've got videotapes of Sharon because I've seen a picture with the videotape, the, uh, what is it, VHS, mm-hmm. transcript of Sharon Vincent or Sharon Vincent interview. 
Um, what else do they have? I want to see it because the three people in this room know this case, I think, better than anybody else. And we can look at it and fit it into the puzzle. And if they just helped us out, we could all solve it together. It can be solved, guys. She's somewhere. You know, the articles that say she could be anywhere. Yeah, I guess that's true. But you need to follow the clues. It's a limited universe right. of where she follow could be. Follow the evidence. If you know what you're talking about, and if you did some background on this case, and you know anything about it, I mean, uh, uh, follow the clues. It, it's mm -hmm. it's really, honestly, as simple as that. There's a lot of evidence. There's a, a lot of this case, for you to glean information, you needed to talk to a lot more people than they did. And I know they said they interviewed a bazillion people on this case. That's what might, they might have. But at some point, did you sit down and try to piece it all together? Because if you didn't, you probably didn't. That's why it's been 31 years. You know, I'll give you another example. I talked to Jane Murad, uh, Doreen's grandmother, and I apologize if I'm pronouncing that incorrectly, but um, talked to her for about two hours. And the only time she ever talked to the police was when the police made Donna call her to swear that Donna hadn't sent her down to Florida. Um, again, this little girl went missing from a house. Um, it's three days out. Mark didn't report it. But Donna, you call your mother and make sure that, you know, you have to prove to us she's not in Florida. So this sort of goes into another question that we received from a woman, Andrea, from followers. Um, would Doreen have been likely to hitchhike or accept a ride from a stranger? I mean, she'd hitchhiked before. We know of one time. This chronic thing is nonsense. Um, there was one time, which is something I think could only have happened in the 80s, uh, Doreen was unhappy with the clothes that Mark was making her wear. She was in New York at the time. She called Donna and I think Debbie, but Donna and Debbie or Donna and Carol went up to New York, went to the town where Doreen was and went from elementary school to elementary school to try to find Doreen. When they found her, they pulled her out. And they put her on a plane to Florida, away from Mark. That's two instances. One's a hitchhiking, and one is a travel to Florida. On the first hitchhiking incident, I think you guys will remember, Mark was hot on her tail. Debbie said she was, or excuse me, Donna said she was in the house for about, what, five minutes, ten minutes? Yeah. And Mark was Mark showed right up at there. the door within, I think Debbie told me, Mark showed up at the door within 20 minutes. Yeah. He, he followed her. He knew exactly where she was. This is a person who, if his daughter hitchhiked or ran away, you know, he's going to be hot on her tail. Um, also, you know, we've gone over the Haddon Clark angle. I think if she had hitchhiked, you know, that would have been a crime of opportunity for somebody. Um, no body's ever been found. Well, also the clothes that she was last seen in. Right. Were still yeah. in the house. Mm-hmm. So if somebody like a Hatton Clark kidnapped her, at what point did they stash her clothes back in her closet? Well, and so the that's how we know. Look, the, the police checked trains, planes, automobiles, and everywhere they could. And there was not ever once a credible sighting of any sort to suggest that that kid ever left that house that night. There is no evidence to support well, that also, at all. Too, it's like I said at the beginning of our last episode, um, you have a very limited set of circumstances here, which sets this apart from all other true crime podcasts. 
um, you are limited in where the house is. It's a very isolated area. Those roads are not made for walking, especially when it's getting dark out. Um, there is no conceivable way that even a 12 year old would decide to just wander off on that road as it's getting dark when she had the opportunity to call somebody if she wanted to leave. That's right. You're also on how many acres of land there. I mean, she could have gone out and, and, and sat out by the lake if she was stewing and wanted to get away from her dad. You're exactly right. There's nowhere to go. She didn't know where she was going. It was getting dark out. The closest thing is miles away. Let's not forget, too, you touched on this earlier, the door. So everybody wants to know how Mark knew that Doreen left. His word was the door was standing wide open. The front door with this mysterious lock. This is something we can go into. Jimmy and Laura disagree on who put the lock on and who what was there. We don't know if Mark put it on, whatever. Um, Sharon said at one point she wouldn't have been able to leave because she didn't have a key to the lock. Then she retracted that. I've never been able to find another instance of her talking about that. But you know who wanted to talk about that the other day to Debbie was Mark. Mark told Debbie that the lock didn't mean anything because, and I don't know how he sees this happening in his mind, Doreen could have gotten around that lock anytime she wanted. She could have gone in and out of that door. Mark's pissed that we're talking about the lock. Why is he harping on that detail? Well, there's got to be a reason for it, because when people like Mark harp on a detail, it does mean something. And the fact that he was quick to try to dispel that again, he likes to deny the details, not the actions. Right. I when you told me that that that's what Mark said, um, I took issue with that right away because, okay, well, the lock has always been part of the story. And this is the first time in 31 years he denied the lock. This is the first time in 31 years he's talked about the lock. And all of a sudden, because we've been talking about the lock, the lock is something that he needs to, that he needs to address. Right. Also, it's always bothered me. Like, how did you know she was gone, Mark? Well, because the front door was standing open. Let's just say she ran away. She's 12. They just got into a fight. He paddled her. She screamed. He pushed her into a window. She takes off to stew. She's going to leave the front door open as what? A bat signal? Hey, Dad, I'm gone. I left the front door standing wide open. You know, she knows he's going to come after her if she's hitchhiking. She's not going to, you know, what do hitchhikers do? What do runaways do, right? In the movies, they stuff their bed. They don't leave a giant clue like, come find me. I'm walking down, what is that road anyway, off of Whirlwind, that goes down to the highway. I mean, there's nothing there, guys. Oh, no. It's yeah. just forest. It's Route forest. Runs 50, uh, once you get past the reservoir, right? You're, you're walking to nowhere. And again, this is a girl who only lived there for not even 10 days. How, how aware of her surroundings would she have even been? We know she hated being there because it was out in the middle of nowhere. So what makes anybody think that a little girl miserable being out in the middle of nowhere would have just decided to walk through the wilderness to try to find what? And then she disappeared forever. Right. Um, what a huge coincidence. Just like the huge coincidence that her stepmom was at church all night. Well, also, this, this is another fact we haven't really touched on. Sharon said at one point that she found letters, written letters in envelopes addressed to Doreen's friends in Bridgeport. Um, 
and then the next line in the article is those letters have never been accounted for or no then the next line in the warren is those letters have never been accounted for so she wrote letters to her friends saying what sounds like sharon kept board games magazines you know all the clothes that she was reported to have gone missing in, but those letters that might have given a clue to her disappearance. Yeah, it's like, what are the things that are missing? The things that are missing, that the things have either been destroyed or never been accounted for, the diary, all these letters, all these things that indicate something, where she's, where she's pouring her thoughts into something. Any insight into what Doreen may have been thinking has been destroyed or lost yeah or misrepresented i mean we know she missed her friends in bridgeport i'm sure she did but we know that because sharon and mark said it and we don't you know again i have to bring back jimmy farnham calling her you know um oppositional and uh having disciplinary issues you know i wanted to um sarah i'm gonna pass this over to you i haven't um you haven't seen these before since uh Paul just sent them to me the other night, but Paul Vincent has now sent um, the following photos. I know you've seen one. Okay. Oh, man. Yeah, we got, um, I'm looking at one of, looks like Doreen sitting on the couch. She's reading to, it looks, I'm guessing that's Paul right next to her, reading him a book. Um, who, who else is in this picture? Um. They looked like a really happy family. That's Sarah in the foreground. All right, that's little little Sarah. She's a baby. She's sitting on the floor. Um, that's Sharon's dad, and that is the first photo I think any of us have ever seen of Sharon. All right, and that's that's Sharon. Okay. Oh, and here's um, here's another one of Doreen. She's got um, I'm, I think that's Paul again, and he's sitting up on her shoulders and got their their hand holding they've paul's got his arms out he called her doreen because he had a hard time pronouncing the name doreen i just going into this you know we've had so much contact with debbie and carol and donna and stephanie um doreen's sister that it's easy to forget that two other little kids lost their sister as well yeah i'm actually looking at a picture right now and it's of Doreen laying inside of a crib with mm -hmm. um, this is probably Paul again, but uh, Paul as a baby and Doreen is laying inside of his crib with him and she's kind of holding him and it's very sweet. They look really happy, don't yeah. they? He's got really good memories of her uh, in, in his mind and it's sad. It's just really I'm just, sad. I'm looking at one picture of Doreen right here, and she just looks so much like Stephanie to me in this picture. She looks amazingly like Stephanie. And, you know, I don't I don't mean to, to take this down a notch at all, but, you know, describe the clothes she's wearing. I mean, they're not... Look, she's wearing, like, normal T-shirt, shorts, white T-shirt, uh, not all black. There's a lot of white, a lot of reds, very colorful. She's a very normal dressed kid yeah. in these pictures and there are a few where she's got like the dresses on and you know she's a little but bit she doesn't look like and, winona ryder but no from Beetlejuice. she's definitely not not lydia from beetlejuice not at all and yeah she just looks like there's so many pictures here of doreen with paul and sarah and you can tell that 
that she loved them because she's playing with them in every single picture or she's holding them or just something or carrying them on her shoulders or something like that. And you can tell that they really love her. Like, you know, sorry. Yeah. You can tell too, like this has to be, this has got to be one of the last pictures ever taken of her because Paul looks a little bit older in this picture. Yeah. And, and so does she. Yeah. yeah. Um, I noticed going through those and those were the ones, you know, and that was my very first contact with, sorry, I'm crying a little. Um, that was my very first contact with Paul that he reached out to me and he said, I have photos, you know, mm-hmm. would you like to see them? He said, I think that Donna and the family would like to see them. Um, have you sent these on to Donna and everyone? Yeah. Okay. Yeah. Um, you know, I guess before it was easy to think about Paul and Sarah as just like the two kids in the house, you know, Mark and Sharon's kids. Yeah. To see them interacting and the, to see the, the how close they were. I mean, it is. It's, yeah. it's heartbreaking. They it's loved her too. Very kind of Paul to want to share these pictures with Donna and her family, uh, you know, who, who basically were robbed of, of this girl. And, and, and to at least to be able to sort of get some of what was happening and, and, and just to sort of see her again. Pictures they've never seen and they don't have. I mean... Well, they were all robbed. I mean, I think, you know, we've definitely cast aspersions on Sharon. And, you know, I don't entirely um, forgive her for, you know, going along with whatever Mark wanted to do. But at the same time, the more that I learn about Mark and the more that I learn about... Sorry. The guy's a master manipulator is, is the bottom line. You know, we've talked about Sharon before. I truly believe Sharon was an accessory after the fact. I I don't think, you know, again, just judging by the, by her mentioning the door and the lock and that this didn't seem to jive out and she quickly changed her story. Again, make make your own assumption on that. What would have made her change her mind where this is we talked about this. I've given it a little more thought. And upon further reflection, definitely no, she she ran away, which is that's not how that's not how reflection generally works. Yeah, you yeah. don't generally arrive at you you think about things and you brood on them and you arrive at a clearer picture. I was a real jerk now that I think about it, and I'm sorry. It's never you know what. I definitely wasn't being a jerk. That's all on you. Right. That's what my reflection has come up you with. You realize things upon reflecting that make the story clearer and it doesn't become, yeah, there was a big scuffle and paddling and window breaking, but then she ran away. That's not how it works. Again, the amount of coincidence that you would have to believe in order to think that their story has any sort of credibility at all on top of the fact that the clothes were found in the house, on top of the fact that there's never been any evidence of her leaving the house that night. There's no evidence of it at all. No. All the evidence would say she was still there. That's why all her stuff was still in the house. Yeah. Keep in mind, everyone, if she left that house, she left empty-handed and without her shoes. Um, She left... I mean, does that make sense to you? No. So... Yeah. She needed her sneakers if she was going to leave the house. Mm-hmm. And they were in the house. So, again, eh, explain it. Somebody somebody explain that. If you could explain that, 
then 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 that would change everything. I think we're past that point, guys. No, yeah. I know we are. I think we're past we that are. point. Um, we are for I'm sure. trying to give the best um, of the doubt. Let's let's get to the last question that we wanted to touch on. It's something that um uh, a listener in the followers group asked. Um we had mentioned that we have spoken to one of Doreen's classmates. Uh, Jessica met with um, an old classmate of Doreen's, and this person in the group wanted to know, did uh, Doreen's classmate mention if Doreen showed any signs of sexual abuse or had ever mentioned any sexual abuse? Yes. Yes, she did. And the details weren't something that she would have gleaned from the underwear photos, which should immediately give everybody pause. Start there. Start with the underwear photos. Um, This classmate had details. A teacher called the other day, a fourth, fifth grade teacher with details. Um, Donna has details. Debbie and Carol have details. And their grandmother, Jane, has details. So I think that information is important enough to wait and develop and share with you on a future episode it can be its own separate episode uh following these episodes uh in which we've been answering these questions um i think it's appropriate that the next episode be specific to that uh to really address the the different signs that people have brought up of you know, each independent from each other, too. Like, these are all different things that other people witnessed in Doreen's behavior that all are indicative of that kind of abuse going on. It, it, it makes you wonder if they all would have gotten together back then at some point and compared all these stories and situations that maybe, you know, and, and again, I think this is part of where some of this guilt lies for so many people in that, like, I should have said something, you know, this seemed weird, but I didn't say anything. And, and now look where we are. So, well, 1988 too, and we can talk about this in more detail, you know, was also a very different time than it is now as far as yeah, sexual as far abuse as is concerned. That subject matter. Yeah. But I think too, what a lot of people on the page, Sarah, you said before have been struggling with is, ah, it's so easy. Mark did it. We know blah, blah, blah. Or, you know, someone Mark related to Mark did it. Mark knows what happened. You know, the question becomes why. Um, Detective three told me, I said, what was the argument about? What's the argument in the room about? And he said, uh, Mark didn't like the magazines that Doreen was looking at. I don't think so. Well, again, where'd that information come from? Who told the police that that's what it was? One of the most dishonest people on the planet. Mark. Yeah, and Mark told Teresa, too, from you remember from an earlier episode that he didn't like the way she was dressing and she was, you know, acting like a typical teenager. And that's exactly what Teresa told him. I mean, somebody doesn't disappear off the face of the earth for a long time because of magazines. Um, one of the things that Donna and Debbie and Carol have said to me from the very beginning is it had to have been something really big to take her away from her entire family for all time. Mm-hmm. I think that's huge. No, it is no small thing when a 12-year-old does not get a chance at life. Um, that's not over magazines. And it's not over just uh, what clothes she's wearing. Um, that's a big deal when a 12-year-old disappears and has no chance at 
a future of any kind. Um, so we've been talking for quite a bit today. I'm sure at this point, I'm not sure what episode mm -hmm. we're on. <laughs> um, we still have more. We have more questions. Um, uh, let's start to wrap it up today, though. Um, but we encourage listeners to keep this engagement coming because this is a case that can be solved. I mean, before any of us heard about Doreen, this started out as cold as cold can get with only a handful of other people who knew about Doreen. And that's including people here in Connecticut. Now, this is not a well-known case around here at all, or at least it wasn't. Um, and everything that we've talked about is a result of, like we said, about six months of research. Um, and it's the recent involvement of listeners that is causing Doreen's case to heat up again. Would you agree? Oh, they have been fantastic in bringing in new information. I've made that appeal a couple of times. Let me do it again if you guys don't mind. If you were around these folks, if you went to Sharon's church, if you knew or went to school with Doreen or Mark, I know you're listening. If you want to have a chat. I, I would, I would, I'll take your call at any time. Let me throw Anytime. this, let me throw this on top of it. I mean, this is fishing, but a really smart friend of mine said, well, if Mark's in sober living, which he is, you think he went there on his own? Nope. He's got some sort of parole officer, some sort of probation officer. He's been in jail a lot, guys. And Debbie said the only thing that Mark's ever been scared of is jail. He doesn't want to go back. But he's been there. He's at Teen Challenge. A couple people from Teen Challenge, you know, haven't really told us anything specific, but they're keyed in and they're watching. Uh, Mark, we're watching. Give us a call. All right, so we'll be sharing some of the documents that we've spoken about um, on Patreon, and that includes Hanley's letter. Um, we just, uh, you just heard me uh, as I looked at the photos that Paul Vincent was kind enough to send to Jess. Um, so we'll have some of those photos up on Patreon, too, if you would like to view that. Um, please feel free to become a patron and help us in this investigation, help us to keep this podcast going. That's patreon.com slash fadedoutpodcast. But please, of course, join us on Facebook at facebook.com slash fadedoutpodcast. And, of course, the closed group that you can request to join. It's called Followers of Faded Out. Um, and you can, of course, email us with any questions, tips, concerns, any reason whatsoever that you would like to reach out. That's fadedoutpodcast at gmail.com. So I want to thank Jessica and Joe for coming in and talking for all this time today. I'm sure... Um, I'm sure this ended up being a few episodes. If this is better than us just sitting home talking about it among yeah. ourselves. So thank you for the opportunity. Yeah. So I'm Sarah Dimio. See you next time. Faded Out is written, hosted, and edited by me, 
Background research by Jessica Fritz Aguirre. Produced by Joe Aguirre, Jason Panette, and Maxwell McGee of Clovercrest Media Group. Visit clovercrestmedia.com for more on Faded Out, as well as other great original podcasts. Subscribe to Faded Out on iTunes, Spotify, and anywhere you get your podcasts.